Hello, good to see everyone. Hope you had a great spring break. And it was really beautiful here too, wasn't it? It's fun to enjoy the spring weather early. Okay, we've been watching Jesus approaching the cross. This was his destiny for our salvation. He was in the last stage of his journey into Jerusalem. And sometimes he's portrayed, or in movies, he's depicted as maybe being somewhat of a pitiful character at this point, uh, looking as if he's being pulled to the cross against his will, and we might envision him losing control, being pushed around, maybe a little defeated, maybe feeling just resigned to his suffering. But this is not who Jesus was. During his final days on earth, Jesus was, in every way and at every moment, the king of the universe. He carried with him the authority that belonged to him alone as God the Son, even though he was heading toward his death. He was commanding, he was strong, he was decisive, and he was in control. He was the undisputed king who chose to lay down his life for the sins of the world. Look on your verse sheet. John 12, Jesus said, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And John 10, Jesus said, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And there was one fleeting moment when Jesus received the praise on earth that he deserved as a king. And we call this the triumphant entry. How many of you remember as a child waving your palm branches didn't you love that? Um, and our children here do it on, they'll do it Sunday week. So uh, be watching for that. Because we got to really, even as children, I think it was a way for us to understand I'm praising who Jesus was. Jesus was the king. And we left him last week in Jericho. Remember, he healed blind Bartimaeus. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Now they're in the suburbs of Jerusalem, which are Bethany and Bethpage. Remember, it's Passover time. And that is why the Passover lamb is coming into the town of Jerusalem. And at that time of the year, I wish we could be there and see it, pilgrims came from all over the world to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And the streets were crowded, and there were people everywhere, and there was enthusiasm, and there was a lot of talk about the Messiah, and when will he come, and what will that kingdom look like. And up until now, Jesus had chosen specifically not to reveal his Messiahship. But that day was the day. The time had come, and he was going to be deliberate, he was going to be purposeful in making this announcement of who he really was. And you and I, after reading these stories the last few weeks in Mark, we would expect him to come into Jerusalem sort of secretly at night, hiding because he knew all these uh, Jewish leadership and hostile people that were there in the city. But he actually does the exact opposite. 
He comes into Jerusalem in great courage, very public. Everybody could see him, and everybody was talking about this Jesus from Nazareth. When he did this, he was fulfilling the words of David. Look on your verse sheet at Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O you gates of Jerusalem. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he? This King of glory, the Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. And he is on the outskirts. Of Jerusalem. It tells us in Luke and John that the people, the crowds that were there, they were hearing the story about how Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead not too long ago. And there was talk about that. They were talking about many of the great healings of Jesus. So this would be a triumphant entry, the unveiling of the Messiah and the coronation of Jesus as the king. This would be his last public appearance before his crucifixion and we know how important it was because they mention it in all four gospels which doesn't happen too often so look at verse one as they approached jerusalem and came to Bethpage and bethany at the mount of olives jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden untie it and bring it here and if anyone asks you why are you doing this tell them the lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to. And the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead... And those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now I mentioned earlier Jesus was purposeful when he was going to disclose himself, his messianic unveiling. And it centered around the fulfillment of scripture and not the fulfillment of the expectations of the Jewish people. Because what would they expect? They would really envision their Messiah as riding on a horse, being strong and mighty, being dressed colorfully, having an army behind him, and proving himself to be a great king of war and conquest. But Jesus would enter Jerusalem as a servant, a king, and a conqueror, but in very different ways than what the Jewish people would expect. So first he picks his method of transportation, and a young donkey would fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. The donkey is ready and waiting at the king's beck and command. We don't know if Jesus earlier made plans to have that donkey there, and he'd talk to the owner, but there's a very great chance we're witnessing the omniscience of Jesus knowing that that predestined donkey was waiting there for his unveiling as the Messiah. Either way, no one stopped 
to, no one attempted to stop the divine presentation of the Messiah. And later, nobody would be able to ignore the divine message of the manner in which Jesus came into the city. Even if they didn't understand it that day, those who would come to know Jesus later would understand what each of these uh, events symbolized as Jesus came into the city. Look at Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I think Jesus on a donkey symbolized three things. First of all, it symbolized humility. Jesus was not demonstrating the earthly pride of an earthly king, but the gentleness of a Passover lamb when he rode into Jerusalem. And this was how he lived his life when he was here on earth. He really arrived and entered our world riding a donkey as the unborn child of Mary. He would leave our world in the same way, in the same humility as when he arrived. And Zechariah tells us the gentle king riding on a donkey would be just, and he came endowed with salvation for us. He came endowed to give it away, to provide our salvation by offering us eternal life through his sacrifice. Jesus on a donkey symbolized sacredness. The Jews felt like if an animal had never been ridden before, it was specially suited for a holy purpose. And that was very true. This colt had never been ridden. And have you ever seen someone get on a horse or a colt that's never been ridden? They usually don't stay on it very long. This donkey was calm. His creator was on his back. And he did his job well. And he carried the Messiah into Jerusalem. I read this little poem where the donkey is talking and says, I may appear worthless, but I had a high calling. Here's how it goes. With monstrous head and a sickening cry and my ears like errant wings, I'm the devil's walking parody of all four-footed things. But you are fools, for I have also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet There was singing around my ears and palm branches underneath my feet. There was a holy purpose for this donkey because he carried the holy God. And he did his job well. And the last thing riding on a donkey symbolized was peace. The Messiah of the scriptures is a king of peace. Look at Isaiah 9.6. Remember this prophecy. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. When a king went to war, he rode on a horse. When a king came in peace, he rode on a donkey. And so Jesus is saying here, I am the king. But by being on a donkey, he's saying, I am the king of peace. I did not come here to lead an earthly rebellion against men. I came here to lead a spiritual rebellion against sin. And when you let me deal with your sin, you can have peace with your creator, peace in your heart, peace with each other. He came as a king of peace.
The Messiah of the scriptures is the conqueror of sin and death. We get this picture where they took their cloaks, the disciples laid them over the back of the donkey, and then the people laid out their cloaks on the road as a sort of path and laid out branches, and it tells us in the other Gospels they were palm branches. They did all that to honor Jesus because this is what the Jews would do to honor a Jewish conqueror that was coming through the city on his way to the capital. They would lay these things down. But Jesus enters as a different kind of a conqueror. He would conquer sin. He would conquer death itself. Remember his grand introduction by his cousin John. The first time he sees Jesus coming to be baptized, he says, look, it's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. That's the kind of conqueror Jesus was. And he would conquer death. Look at Isaiah 53. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes him a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The conquering king. And then the singing began. And I would have loved to have heard that. Chanting and singing to Jesus. And the way it's written here says it was antiphonal. Meaning they were responding back and forth to each other. A group in front of Jesus and a group behind Jesus. Singing Psalm 118. These are verses about the Messiah. Blessed is he who's coming in the name of the Lord, of our father David. And they would often sing at all their festivals, Psalms 113 through 118. But 118 was specifically about the Messiah. And what were they thinking as they sang? Jesus knew he was fulfilling prophecy as he rode into his triumphant entry. But did the people, did they believe he was the coming one, the expected king and Messiah? And if so, they would be expecting Jesus any moment to build his earthly kingdom and become a political kingdom for them and their nation. Um, So the depth of their understanding would not be the same as the depth of Jesus' understanding. But for this moment, this divine unveiling, it seems that there were people who felt that they could place their hopes on Jesus to be their deliverer. But I think the extent of their understanding pretty much stopped right there. In fact, John 12 tells us the disciples watched all this and didn't understand it until after Jesus was glorified. Of course, there were some faces in the crowd that were not celebrating. Who would that be? We're getting tired of the Pharisees. (laughs) They heard the songs. They heard the chanting. They heard the praising. And then Luke tells us in anger, they yelled out to Jesus on the donkey, Hey, tell your disciples, tell these people to shut up. And Jesus' answer is, if they keep quiet, then the stones will start to sing. Because this was the ordained time for the unveiling of Jesus as the Messiah. And what was Jesus feeling as he was coming up the hill toward Jerusalem? Look at Luke 19. 
As they approached Jerusalem and saw the city, Jesus wept over it and said, If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. God came as a servant. Christ came as a servant. He came as a king. He came as a conqueror. But we see in these verses, he was still their shepherd who loved them as lost sheep. Deeply loving them. Look at Isaiah 40. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. I wanted to see Jesus' authority in action. Uh, the crowds began to die down. The voices, the singing sort of fades in a distance. And what is the very first thing the Messiah does? Look at verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He looks at the condition of the temple because he can. Because he has the authority to do that. It is his father's house. And when we see him walking over to do that, we once again see his deliberate actions in his last days. He is not plunging into unknown waters here. He is not out of control. He is calculating when he looks around to make observations about the temple. He decides to leave the city so the Pharisees don't try to find him again and the angry people and go back into Bethany. He probably stays with Mary and Martha and Lazarus who live there. And every night at sunset, they shut the gates of Jerusalem. So he made it out just in time, and the gates shut behind him. But he has made plans for the following day to clean out his father's house. And do you remember in the Gospels, this will be the second time he does this. He did this once early in his ministry. So he comes here. He starts his ministry by cleaning his father's house. Before he goes back to the Father, he cleans it out one more time. He'll put it back in order. Look at verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Okay, we need to envision a busy market here. Maybe you've been to some other countries and you've done the market thing and you know a little bit what you can envision is going on in the temple. It's chaotic. It's loud, it's haggling, it's a place of great insincerity and dishonesty. Um, I actually got to be in Israel not too long ago and had something funny happen where I was in a store and, you know, they teach you when you go to these markets, okay, you should pay less than half of what they're asking, which I hate. So you're like, no, 
no, no. And then you learn. You're supposed to turn and walk away, and then they'll start calling you back. Wait, lady in the blue, come back here. And you come back, you start haggling all over again. So anyway, I have found this vase that was really different and unique and beautiful. <laughs> Marianne and Wilson was there, so we're laughing. And Linda and Cindy Leonard. We went with the church. We went with the church group. Uh, and Melinda. Anyway, we found this vase. So they tell us the story of the vase that came a long way. Came from Turkey, and only a few were made. And they had to carry them on carts over the mountains. And it was so hard to get them there. You know, we're just listening. Fortunately, we did get them to bring the price down. So I brought my rare Turkish vase home and was so proud of it until the day I opened my Pottery Barn magazine. <laughs> there is the rare Turkish vase. In Pottery Barn for probably half of what we all paid for one of these vases. And Cindy was laughing because they won't hold any water. <laughs> Imagine that going on in the house of God. Imagine that is what the Messiah steps into the very next day. And in this case, it's taking place in the outer courts of the Gentiles, which is just outside of the sacred courts of the temple itself. And we have a diagram of that. We had to make something very simple because nothing would project. But basically, the white area is all inside the temple walls. Look how big it was, the court of the Gentiles. And then inside, you see the court of the women, the blue stripe in the middle, that's the court of Israel. And then you go into the holy of holies and the green. I'm sorry, the yellow. And the holy place is the green. The yellow is the holy of holies. So envision all this marketing going on out here in this big open courtyard. This is an area that both Jews and Gentiles could go to. But beyond that court, the Gentiles were not allowed to go. God created this area for prayer and preparation uh, to meet with him. But bit by bit, it had been entirely secularized by the Jewish people. So imagine that filled with markets and haggling and chaos and dishonesty and insincerity, and you wonder to yourself, how was prayer and devotion taking place here? It wasn't. It was impossible. So what was being accomplished now in this area was the exploitation of all the pilgrims that had taken such a long time to get to Jerusalem to worship God for the Passover. They had to pay a temple tax of one and a half shekels. It had to be paid in a particular kind of coinage, shekels of the sanctuary. The Jews came from all over the world to come to Jerusalem with all kinds of currencies. They wouldn't accept Roman and Greek currencies because what's on a Roman and Greek coin? A face. Yeah. So that is idolatrous to use those kind of coins. So you had to come in and change the money. When you did, you were cheated. They had an interest rate and they cheated you out of your money and you didn't have much money to get there in the first place. 
Then there was the issue of doves for sacrifices. You could get your doves outside of the temple walls at a pretty good price. But guess who would grab you when you stepped into this temple area, this court area? The inspector of the doves. And lo and behold, your dove that you bought cheaply outside was not quite pure enough. So then they said, well, go to our temple stalls here and pick a dove out at a very high price. They also sold wine, oil, salts, other animals at very high prices, exploiting the pilgrims who came to worship God. Jesus hated this fleecing. He hated this swindling. He hated what they had done to the house of God that was called a house of prayer. In fact, when he calls it a den of robbers, he's comparing it to the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was windy and long and had caves, and they would call the areas where the robbers would hide in the caves the den of robbers who tried to uh, attack people on their way into Jerusalem. We read that Jesus also stopped people from carrying merchandise through this area. This was interesting to me. Worship had so fallen by the wayside that was supposed to be taking place here that people were using the court as a shortcut to get into the city to sell their wares somewhere. So not only do you have this market going, you have people carrying bananas, whatever it was, their animals, goats, herds of goats going through, through... (laughs) The courtyard as a shortcut into the city. And Jesus on this day didn't allow them to come through anymore. How could they call the temple a house of prayer for all the nations as God called it in Isaiah when in the Gentile court the Jews had stopped the potential for Gentile worship? And so Jesus is yelling this out, reminding them, my house will be called a house of prayer, all the while as he's tipping over and turning and destroying all the tables and chairs, or if there were chairs, the tables that were keeping them uh, from really worshiping God and focusing them on the very wrong things, wicked trading. What Jeremiah said rang true. Look at Jeremiah 7. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this message. Listen, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. Reform your ways and your actions. Don't trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. If you change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, If you don't oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, then I will let you live in this place. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? Jesus, when he took this action, challenged the authority and the pocketbooks of the conniving scribes and the chief priests. And Matthew tells us, it's so interesting to me, you can imagine what an uproar Jesus made uh, in this temple during this scene but he never left he stayed until sunset after he got rid of everything and stopped everybody from walking through it says that he stayed in the temple and he taught and they brought sick people to him and he healed 
After he had destroyed the potential for cheating and distraction, he stayed and made it what it was really supposed to be. Much to the dismay of the Jewish leaders, children arrived in the temple area and began to say to Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. These poor Pharisees could not get away from this. And so then they say again to Jesus, stop these children from saying these things to you. And Jesus responds to them, from the lips of children and infants, God has ordained praise from Psalm 8. Now is the time for the unveiling of the Messiah. And they are speaking truth. The Jewish leaders could do nothing about it because the people hung, that's actually a word used, on every word that Jesus said. He spoke with heavenly authority. But I want to take a step back to look at how Jesus also shows his authority. Before he arrived at the temple, we need to witness his authority in a different situation. It's connected. Before he gets to the temple to clean it, he sees a fig tree He curses it on the way to the temple for its lack of fruit. And the day after he cleanses the temple, he sees the tree and it's withered and it's useless. And we realize both the temple and the fig tree explain each other. When Jesus got to the temple, he found it as barren of fruit as he had found lack of fruit on the fig tree. Look at verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Okay, so we have to picture this tree looks really promising. It's healthy, it's green, it's bushy, it's promising, but yet there are no figs. And even though it wasn't fig season, poor people used to eat the early buds on the fig trees. And if the fig tree was planted along a road, that was public property. And so poor people could walk along the road and grab these early buds, they were edible, and eat these as well. Since there was no early fruit on the tree, Jesus knew there would be no later fruit on the tree. And this was the religious life of Israel. When he went into the temple, he found no fruit there and he knew there would be no fruit later as well. They looked good on the outside, but their hearts were spiritually empty. The tree in the temple demonstrated promise without fulfillment, and profession without reality. And Jesus exposes Israel as a nation that flourished with the leaves of ritual religion, but lacked the fruit of righteousness that God demanded. And so Jesus cursed the fig tree in the same fervor that he would cleanse out the temple. Neither The tree or the temple provided what it seemed they should provide. 
Both of these episodes signify God's impending judgment on Israel for their religious hypocrisy. And the morning after Jesus cursed the fig tree, it was withered from the roots up. There was a tree blight that would attack trees from the roots up. And after Jesus spoke his words, that happened overnight. And this is a warning for Israel. It was a picture of the coming judgment for Israel. Like tree, like temple, like nation. And they faced that physical blight in 70 AD and found themselves destroyed, the temple destroyed, found themselves as a nation, fruitless. And if you go there today to the temple site, it is claimed by the Muslim nation, the blight on Israel. The good news is we're not going to get into it, but we just studied Isaiah and Daniel, and we know that Israel will not stay in this state, that one day when Christ returns, they will once again be a tree that also bears fruit. So that's a great promise. Okay, Jesus' authority is questioned. Look at verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the courts, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gives you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? If we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This happened on a Tuesday morning. Jesus would be crucified in just a few days. Where do we find him again? In the temple. He preached and taught and offered truth up until the moment he walked toward the cross. And these verses show us, they say he's walking in the temple. The big pillars of the temple with their big uh, patios and openings. This is where the teachers would walk back and forth and groups would follow them to just lean into their words and learn from them. This is where we find him. But this is where we also hear the whining, accusing, jealous words of the teachers and the scribes that just follow Jesus everywhere he goes. I don't know why I didn't just turn around and do that. Here's their point. We have the authority of the official credentials to perform our duties. Where are your credentials? Where are your credentials to come into our temple and turn it upside down? Where are your credentials to walk around here allowing people to call you the Messiah? And we were commissioned to perform our spiritual duties. Who commissioned you? So that you come here day after day, all day long, teaching in our temple as if you have authority. And I realize these are the very things that really drew the disciples to Jesus. They saw his authority was from God. The leaders were unwilling to see that. Only God could have accomplished the miracles and the mercies that surrounded the person of Jesus Christ. Their hope was to hurt him. Let him say he's from God and we can accuse him of blasphemy. 
So Jesus responds with a paralyzing counter question. This is what rabbis often did. Was the authority of John the Baptist from heaven or from men? So without directly answering them, Jesus implies that his authority is the same source of the authority of John the Baptist. He also, by asking this question, stopped their constant attacking and following him around. It wasn't the day for him to go to the cross. If they said John's ministry was from God, then they would be guilty of disobeying God. So they didn't want to answer that. If they said John's ministry was from God, they would also be guilty of disobeying because John told them to follow Jesus because he was from God. If they said his ministry was from men, the people would rebel because the people in the temple believed that John had a divine mission from God. So they had this really articulate answer. We don't know. (laughs) We don't know. And even though Jesus says, well, then I won't tell you where I get my authority, they did know. The very air in the temple was filled with the reality that Jesus was the Son of God. From the way he entered into Jerusalem with the praising, the voices of the children always in the background around the temple, how he raised a dead man, Lazarus, back to life, his presence in the temple, his commanding performance as he cleansed it, the healings that were taking place there, and the people, the verse says, they were struck out of their senses by his teaching. And guess who's breathing that same air? All the Jewish leadership. They were guilty of having the knowledge and ability to decide truth and act upon it, but instead choosing to disobey God's revealed will. This is the impardonable sin. When we have a constant, willful opposition to the work of the Holy Spirit, the root of their problem didn't lay in their understanding or their intellect, but in their stubborn wills in their hearts. And so they stood there with their silly answer, self-condemned before the king. Jesus asking that question was not asking it as a trap. It was one more, yet again, opportunity for them to repent, break out of their stubbornness and say, we can't deny it anymore. Everywhere you go, everything you touch, everything you do, everything we hear points to the fact you have authority from God, but instead, because it didn't line up with their plans, they chose to just stand there again and condemn themselves. What's our access to this king? We can know truth and act upon it. And even though he may be a king, it's his desire for us to know him and come to him in prayer. He desires a relationship with us. Look at Hebrews 4. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. I want to look at what Jesus has to say quickly about prayer with the fig tree. You know, after they came back the next day and the fig tree was withered away, Peter is shocked. 
And he says to Jesus, look, the tree that you cursed, it's totally dead. Jesus is shocked that Peter didn't get it. Jesus is shocked that he didn't understand his authority and the power of his words. And so he decides to use that time to teach him the power of prayer and the words that we can speak to God. So look at verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done. I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you've received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. So your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So we learn three things about prayer here. First, we come to Jesus in faith. This was the initial rule of acceptance of man by God. So faith is the beginning of our relationship with him. Then faith is the rule by which we continue to have a true relationship with God. We can't be like Peter here. We can't be shocked at his powers. We can't show doubt in who he really is. Faith is believing our prayers are as good as answered, even though we can't see the outcome right then. We come to Jesus with pure motives. We already saw what happened to the fig tree in the temple. They promised something, but they produced nothing. The people of Israel had wrong motives because they were ignoring the revealed will of God. Our prayers have to come from a pure heart, pure motive, meaning we want to line our will up alongside the will of God, the revealed will of God as we find it in his scripture. We find it in our hearts through his spirit. So every act of faith rests on the promise of God. We cannot remove all the mountainous obstacles in our path just through our own will. Instead, we know obstacles are removed by the will of God. So this is our faith, that we believe he can do that. And we come to him. We believe nothing is impossible. And we call out to him. For his miraculous work. So our motive is to come alongside his plans, his purposes, not demonstrate our power and accomplish our purposes. We have to accept the revealed will of God, and that's faith. Because God's answers don't always agree with our plans. We come to Jesus, thirdly, choosing forgiveness. So if we think about how do we first come to God? It had nothing to do with your goodness. It had everything to do with God's goodness and his forgiving of your sins. So every time we come to God who has forgiven us while refusing to forgive other people who have sinned against us, we are ignoring the work of God in our lives. It demonstrates a lack of consciousness of the grace that we have received. One man said this, in our unforgiving spirit, we've made it impossible for ourselves to accept the forgiveness freely offered by God since we refuse to adopt the humble attitude in which it can be appropriated. Prayer and resentment don't go together. Prayer, God's divine forgiveness toward us, our forgiveness towards others, they do go together. It's the bridge, forgiveness, is the bridge a praying person has to pass over in order to receive our own daily forgiveness. (laughs) Okay, so we have to close, but here's what I'm hoping. 
I'm hoping we realize in all of these stories today that we have a king that pursues us. Jesus is coming to the temple. Jesus is going to his friend's house. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He comes to us, and just as when he entered Jerusalem and wept, he looks at our sins and he weeps. He works in our hearts as a king of peace. He serves us each day to meet our needs. He is the conqueror of our sins. He cleanses the sin that lurks in the temple's of our heart. He teaches us truth so we can bear fruit for him. Just as he went in the temple and healed people physically and emotionally, that's what he does for us. He gives us the ability to know him so deeply in prayer that we never have to doubt his power and his authority again. But there's a problem with this. In order for Jesus, to accomplish these things in our lives, we have to let him be the king in our lives. Which means we need to set aside our stubborn plans, our stubborn wills, come to him and let him rule and be the authority for all the plans and the purposes in our life. And when we do that, we are opening the ancient doors to our heart. And we are letting the king of glory come in. And we are letting the king of glory reign. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, this incredible moment of you unveiling who you really are. May we represent that everywhere we go. May we be people who so reflect you that we are unveiling who you are into the world. We thank you, Lord, for your deep love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.